0: On Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. When the Palestinian Nakba, or the catastrophe of 1948, is discussed, it's commonly understood to refer to the destruction of villages and the displacement of about 700,000 Palestinians. What gets left out is what happened to the people who remained in the borders of what became Israel and the transformations the new state created on the land, natural resources, the public space, and urban development. On this week's program, Mira Nabulsi is joined by Palestinian architect and urban planner, Lama Shahadeh, to discuss Israel's settler-colonial project and how it manifests itself in urban planning within the 1948 territories and how it impacted Palestinian citizens of Israel.
1: When we talk about ethnic cleansing and Nakba, they're most commonly discussed in terms of the destruction of villages and the removal of people. But what's missing usually is how Israel changed the topography of the land and what happened to the people who remained in historic Palestine. From your perspective as an urban planner, talk to us about the early years of the state of Israel.
2: Actually, that's a good way to start maybe the interview, because people usually see Palestine as what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza, and what happened in historic Palestine is history. It's done. Israel just occupied the land, and that's it. But if we see what Israel did since 1948 or even before, until today, what Israel is continuing to do in historic Palestine, we can understand the patterns of occupation that are happening in the West Bank and Gaza because of the many similarities and because of its one settler colonial state. For us, it's one Palestine, but also it's one settler colonial state. Basically, in 1948, as you know, 700,000 Palestinians were expelled. That's around 50% of the population of historic Palestine. Today, we are 1.5 million citizens. We got the citizenship. That's the status of Palestinians who remained. Most of us live in only Palestinian communities. We call them villages or towns because it's basically villages that grew into dense towns, but still in a village, let's say, traditional way of living. and. Um, it's Palestinian-only communities. Few of us, around maybe 15% or so, live in mixed cities, Jewish and Palestinian population, like the historic cities, Haifa, Yaffa, Akka, and those cities. So if we want to talk about the start of Israel's building the state of Israel, what happened almost right after 1948 is that Israel claimed ownership over 93% of the land, which is huge percentage. I'm talking about the land within historic Palestine, the borders of pre-1967. And 1930% as public land is a huge number compared to all other countries in the world. And there were many laws that allowed the Israeli government to to claim the ownership over those uh, lands. Maybe we'll talk about them later, but this fact allowed basically the Israelis, to see the land as like white canvas. It's all for them, so they can plan whatever they want. And Palestinians, during this period, after 1948, were put under military government for 20 years. So the first 20 years, we were basically in a big open jail, if we want to leave the village or work in other places we had to get permissions it's like the west bank today kind of with the soldiers around the villages etc and this is when basically israel started distributing the population building cities towns infrastructure industrial zones and taking over natural resources and also legislating new laws and expropriating whatever land is left according to their new laws Within those black holes, us, the Palestinians' uh, villages, we were left on 3% of the land only. That is our private land that were not stolen, kind of survived. And we grew eight times more than what we were within this period of time, but only within those borders. So between
1: 1948 and now, you're saying the population of Palestinians inside Israel grew
2: Eight times. around eight times more mm-hmm. I think it's even nine times more almost without any expanding of the borders of those villages uh, we still live only on our private lands Israelis do not allow or do not give up the word give up is wrong like giving up on public land in order for our villages to expand those are our historic lands but we're not allowed to claim them back or we're not allowed to build on them they're just don't belong to us anymore. During this time, basically, we see how those small villages are surrounded by highways, by new Jewish settlements or agricultural lands that don't belong to us. It's not ours. And within our villages, we grew very densely because we don't have any other option. So whoever has land will build houses on their land for just the need of housing. And then you will see those black holes as more like yellowish satellite images because of the very dense housing without public space, without parks, without agricultural lands. We don't have agriculture anymore because we lost the lands, but also whatever is left is now for building houses. So you'll see those dense houses and then you'll see the next Jewish settlements as a very modern planned cities. So that's basically what if we want to see what happened to the map or to the satellite image of historic Palestine as Israel continues to grow.
1: I want to go back a little bit to the beginning Mm. of the State of Israel, and I wanted to kind of get an idea about the early Jewish settlements. Israel doubled its population within the first three years following the State Declaration in 1948. So how did it prepare for the sudden growth of a population with all the Jewish immigration that came to Mm. Palestine? And you started to talk a little bit about what started happening to Palestinians, but how was Israel preparing for this? Mm large growth of population in the early years.
2: Okay, if we continue from the fact that Israel now owns 93% of the land, and they can plan wherever they want, so we can talk about the patterns of planning that they used. First, the Zionist movement, the Jewish National Fund, and all those institutions that worked in Palestine before the, let's say, the formal state of Israel, they all worked on preparing the land for the new immigrants. Well, they used agriculture as one main option for food security and also for employment for the new immigrants. So they tried to distribute agricultural lands all over the place and to claim land by agriculture. But that's more for, let's say, employment. But for populating the immigrants, they started building cities. Here we can talk about different patterns. We can start with Ben-Gurion, who's the Zionist leader then, that wanted to bloom the Negev, the Noqab, the desert of southern Palestine. That was uh, one of the national goals of, of the early stages of Israel. Because the desert is empty, they saw this as a thread. Well, it wasn't empty. It became empty from 100,000 to 11,000 remained only within one year, basically. And they saw it as an opportunity of security, economic mission and building new towns, their new settlements. So that was one goal. And by allowing water to... Well, they also took over natural resources, so they were able to transform water from the rich north to the desert. And they started building uh, settlements. Only by 1960, 1961, we're talking about only 13 years of Israel, there were already 73 Jewish settlements in the desert. That's a big number. Some of them are Jewish development towns. I'll talk about this in a bit and some of them are collective agricultural lands or communities that's the kibbutz also we can talk a little bit about the kibbutz how they built those type of settlements so on like industrial zones for the new population etc that's first the desert the empty lands as as they saw it but also as i say they built agriculture and rural development what they wanted is basically to claim the land to prevent the return to the 1949 UN partition line because in 1948 they basically declared the Israeli state over a larger area so they have now more lands they don't want to go back to the UN partition the 1947 line sorry so what they did is they distributed the agricultural settlements along the borders as buffer zones between, let's say, Gaza and the desert, between Jordan and the West Bank. So wherever they were able to distribute agricultural settlements, they did. They distributed the population too. And uh, they had this model of socialist communal living that's called the kibbutz where they all farm the land and then they live together in those small kibbutz or cooperative uh, settlements. and the new immigrants will work for them. But the big wave of new immigrants were distributed to the what they call development towns. and that's another pattern. So that pattern is basically following the dispersal policy. They didn't build big cities they didn't build another Tel Aviv. What they built is a very low dense towns so they can basically claim more land. And those new development towns were uh, distributed all over the map. So you'll see them in the Galilee area, along the border with Lebanon, the border with the West Bank then, and the desert. And to those new towns, they sent the Mizrahi Jews. The Jewish coming from Arab and Islamic countries, they were not as strong as the Ashkenazi Jews coming from Europe, even before 1948. But those were mostly poor Jewish people coming from Arab countries. They had nothing. They started distributing them in those, wherever they saw a potential for new development town, the towns were nothing yet. They were just like tents or empty lands. So they sent those this big wave of immigrants to those towns and they forced them to build the towns. And many of them, they were shocked. You told us that we're going to the Holy Land, to the new Israeli state. Their life will be better in the new land. But then they realized that they were sent to to work and build the country. And many of them left or did not want to go. From. They sent them by buses. They didn't want to, to leave the bus. No, we it's empty. We don't want to live here. It's not a town even. We don't want to build this place. And some of them tried to live in some of the Palestinian demolished houses or demolished neighborhoods like Salib in Haifa, like Lifta in Jerusalem, because they looked like Arab architecture, they occupied it again, and then they were forced to leave them again. So like Wadi Salib and Lefta were basically, people were expelled from there twice. So that's another pattern is the development towns. But with those towns, they distributed them far from main cities, as I said. They did not rely on agricultural economy, and they did not have any other alternative. So they became very poor towns until today. They're not like... um, good place to live, and they try to do many things, like to change the stereotype over the development towns. but still. And when Israel distributed the population, they also distributed it very ethnically, not just for Jewish versus Palestinian, but also Mizrahi Jewish versus Ashkenazi Jewish, Russian Jewish, Ethiopian Jewish that came later uh, to Palestine. So that was also another pattern.
1: What about the other Jewish communities? Like, is there a specific kind of pattern that you notice in terms of how they were distributed? Like, were the Western Europeans, the Ashkenazis, sent to Mm -hmm. larger urban centers that already existed? Can you give an idea about that, too?
2: As far as I know, the big waves of Jewish immigrants from Europe arrived to Palestine before 1948. And then they were sent to the urban cities that were already mixed because during the British mandate before Israel, basically Jewish people lived along Palestinian, sometimes in the same neighborhoods as Palestinians, sometimes in their own new neighborhoods that they built because the British mandate allowed them to build and to to take over some parts of the cities, let's say in Haifa and Yaffa, where Tel Aviv was built also during the British mandate. So... European Jewish were sent there and to the agricultural settlements. And the agricultural settlements, they are among the elite of the Jewish community today, not because of the fact that they are rich, but because by then the agriculture was a big thing. They took over resources. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of hectares for every single community. 300 people living in in an area that's larger than... Big Palestinian village. So, those resources are still for them today. So, they have enough money, not just from agriculture, but also from selling the land or or building industrial areas over those lands, etc. So, this is where the, the European Jewish lived. And the Mizrahi Jewish basically were sent to the development towns, that's mainly. I don't know about the difference between the different European regions like West Europe versus East Europe. I'm not sure, but I know the difference between Mizrahi Jews versus European Jews. And later on, the other waves of the big Russian immigration that happened after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, those were sent to to new neighborhoods in urban centers. After they established those towns and settlements, etc. Israel transferred into being more urban. They don't follow the dispersal policy anymore. They don't need it. They claimed the land. So now they, they want more efficiency. They want modern cities. Well, they still build different patterns, but they don't need it anymore as they needed it then. They expand cities and build neighborhoods. And then Let's say in Haifa, they built a new neighborhood, they sent Russians there, uh, Ethiopians, they sent them to this neighborhood. And then you'll see it's, it's very similar to the U.S. cities in this terms. Like you'll see neighborhoods that uh, speak one language. The city itself is mixed, but it's segregated within. Exactly. And same with Palestinians that later were able to, to live in those mixed cities we also live in segregated neighborhoods.
1: I wanted to touch on the issue of land. You were starting to talk about that, the issue of land ownership. So what Mm -hmm. happened to the lands and what legal channels did Israel Mm. use to transfer ownership from Palestinians who lived Mm. and farmed these lands to Israeli ownership? And I presume... Perhaps at the beginning, state ownership. There are specific laws that you can tell us about that Israel used in the process of transferring ownership.
2: First, one of the main methods was the absentees law that was in 1950. Let's say it defines basically persons who were expelled from Palestine as absentees. They say that whoever who left, this area, after November 1947, is absentee, and the, the property that they owned, whether it's land or houses, whatever, is now placed under the control of the state of Israel. In that way, they basically took all over the lands of the demolished Palestinian villages, many houses within the remained Palestinian villages, and all the Palestinian historic cities, the Arab neighborhoods in Haifa and Yaffa, all of the cities that were demolished completely. So that's how they took those lands and properties. Also, they transferred the ownership of every land that was not previously claimed according to the British law of ownership, which is different than the Ottoman law. So according to the Ottoman law that we lived under for hundreds of years. And then the land was not a property as it's seen in the Western planning system. The land is like the natural resource that is, it's public, it's for everyone. So if you work the land, if you're a farmer or whatever, if you work the land, you can eat from what you did. You can sell them, you can do whatever you want to. So people treated the land in this way. Many farmers worked different lands. They knew like this village has this area. They own this area, but it was not written anywhere. Well, part of them, part of them were written under different system of the Ottoman law that the British law does not recognize. So all this paperwork that we have today, it means nothing for the Israeli courts because they just followed the British law. So in this way, we lost another big areas of historic Palestine. They say it's not written, and it's not, the British law does not recognize this kind of ownership, so it's not yours. And it became a state land. Also, when we lived under the Ottoman, let's say, or the British mandate, even if this land was not owned by Palestinians, like private ownership, because it it was not a thing, but you still can, let's say, go there, graze the land, let's say, with if people had heard or whatever, they still can use it. But now when it transferred to Israel, Israel sees it as a property and then they build on it. You're not allowed there. And yeah, another thing that I didn't mention early, earlier about the patterns that Israel used for building this those settlements is that also in many of those settlements, well, most of them, they have committees that do not allow people to rent a house or to buy a house mm-hmm. unless the committee says yes so this is how also we as palestinians cannot say oh i want to go and live in a jewish settlement
1: these committees are basically from the residents of a yeah. certain
2: area yeah. Okay. Yeah, because those were the pioneers that established that place so they have the right to say who's going to live there or not and it's our lands again but yeah you're not allowed to buy a house there in other cities or development towns or whatever there are no committees and it's open but then you have all the other obstacles of living there because of racism or they don't sell you the house Just like someone will not sell you a house that's very easy to do and we don't have schools there facilities you know but we speak arabic we want to learn in arabic schools etc so in all those cities we don't have what we need mm-hmm. and so we don't live there To continue about how they took the, transferred the ownership, so yeah, the unclaimed, let's say, ownership and the absentee's law, but also the Jewish National Fund that was established in 1900, very early, by the Zionist Congress then. And they were responsible for purchasing land in Palestine. So they used this as like, oh, you sold the land, etc. It's not, first of all, it's not a high percentage at all of the lands that they took, but it was one method. But also they used many ways. They were single person that wanted to buy land or to purchase land. Also the land ownership then was one person may own the whole village and then people were farmers. They worked mm-hmm, the, the feudal, land feudal feudal yeah system. and then and those people were very rich. They lived abroad also they didn't live in Palestine. So some of them sold part of the land, but it's not the big percentage of the ownership transferred to the Israeli state. Those lands, they now, they're owned by the state of Israel, and they have different legislations of who can use it. So by definition, only for Jewish people, for Jewish immigrants, and not for others. So they will not expand a Palestinian village on those lands. Each land falls under different law, even if it's all under the state of Israel ownership. It's very ethnic, racial planning system, but yeah, still. But for the planning itself, that's for the ownership. For the planning itself or how they allowed all this to happen, there are other laws, like how they took over natural resources, let's say how they transferred the water from a public resource that you can use to a very central system that only the yes, I was gonna
1: actually control. ask you about the water especially you were starting to yeah. talk about the the Naqab or the Negev Desert mm-hmm. and this whole idea of Israel made the desert bloom which became perhaps also normalized internationally. I wanted us to talk a little bit about the cost mm-hmm. of what that meant For the water sources, and I Mm -hmm. wanted us to kind of understand a little bit how did Palestinians use these water sources before and what happened to them once Israel got into this whole project of turning the Negev desert, one of its early projects, Mm -hmm. to
2: First, Palestinians, like all other people then, we used water locally. We lived based on natural resources. That's how human beings basically moved along this planet. They looked for resources, they lived near them, and they used them. But what Israel did as a colonial system is that they don't care where the resources are. They see everything from above. So for them, this amount of water in Palestine, it doesn't matter where. They can use technology or whatever infrastructure. They can get enough money to build huge infrastructure and to transfer the water from wherever they want. And that's how they saw this. They see it as a very modern, developed technology that they teach it to the world. They teach it as a very successful thing that they did, that they transferred water from the rich north to the desert. First of all, they had the new law, the water law, that's they removed all private or collective property rights over water resources. And they said water resources that are like springs, streams, river, lakes, they were underground or above ground water, is now all under the ownership of the state. And they had new government companies that control it and allocate the water resources, etc. And they built the national water carrier from the Jordanian River to the desert. And the Jordanian River is shared by Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, and Jordan too. But no one cares. Israelis just took the water from the Tiberias uh, lake that they occupied and they transferred formed the water to the desert. And to do that, they built a dam at the southern part of the lake and they prevented the Jordanian River to continue to the Dead Sea. And now the Dead Sea is 35% of its area is dry and it's artificial now. So that's one basically cost of that project that we lost. The only place on earth, that did Sea, there's nothing like this in any other place but Palestine. So we lost it. And also we got dry rivers, dry streams. The main rivers at the center or the north, they got only 5% of their original flow or 2% of their original flow. It was a draft, basically, all over Palestine. And now... They realized that they exploited natural resources not just because they transferred water from north to south, but because of this rapid urbanization of the whole place. When we say, say that they doubled the population, it's not a natural process. It's just bringing too many people and building industrial zones and making them live in a very modern lifestyle too. But also, even if they didn't live the modern lifestyle, the other lifestyle, like the agriculture. They didn't see agriculture as part of working the land. They saw it as a capitalist workshop too. The Jewish agriculture project that they're very proud of and they talk about it, they teach about it again to people around the world. They bring people from all over the world to to help them in agricultural cities and settlements as a national icon for Israelis. Those agricultural lands consumed 90% of water resources in Palestine. And that got us to the fact that we don't have water anymore. And now Israel is treating uh, seawater and treating saline underground water. So we don't drink natural water anymore. Now, I think more than 60% of agricultural lands are getting recycled water. uh, And 80% of household consumption is uh, seawater-treated water water and not natural water resources, which is again relying on technology and uh, chemicals in order to live. After exploiting the water resources and making this natural transformation of of the area, now we're again living under a place where we rely on electricity in order to drink. And when they took over the water resources, They also demolished many of the water facilities, like local, it's not facilities, like local pools that were in every village for animals to drink or for people to wash their clothes, whatever, they demolished those places. They also closed all the springs because villages were built around springs. Mm -hmm. So they closed the springs and that's it. You're not allowed to take water anymore. And the only water that you can drink or use is whatever flows to your house and then it's allocated by government companies the national water carrier it doesn't work anymore because they don't have enough water what they do is that they transfer water from the sea to the center so it's like going now from west to east instead of north to south
1: so did they abandon this whole idea about continuing to make the negev desert green how can they continue Mm -hmm. with that project
2: because if they No, no they didn't They didn't stop that project. There is enough treated water for that project. The main thing is always the Zionist project. Whatever they need for that, they will find a solution for it. It's very sad what's happening in the desert. They also planted forests to claim land so the desert will become green they have large areas of agricultural lands too so if you go to google maps you go to satellite image see the border with gaza and you'll be shocked what is this like one agricultural land is the same area as a Palestinian camp in Gaza, but it's all one color because it's owned by one maybe person that is benefiting from the profit of this land. Now, instead of encouraging people to go to the desert for agriculture or for the national goals, now they're trying to encourage them by high-tech parks, high-tech cities. They're building new cities for people who work for those big high-tech companies, and they're encouraging them to go to the desert. They can subsidize many projects and encourage investors to build there. They're still building. And what's happening to Palestinians there is a sad story of our Nakba that's still ongoing. Because there are Palestinian Bedouins living there, and... There are tens of dozens of villages that are still unrecognized. When I say unrecognized village, it means that Israel doesn't see it as a legal place, but their historic village, they live there. But again, as I say, the Ottoman law was different than the British laws, and then they don't recognize the paperwork that those people have. For the Israelis, those people don't own the land, and they have to move. And they built seven new, well, not new anymore, but seven cities to concentrate the Bedouins to prevent them from living all over the desert, mm-hmm. although they don't really live all over the desert but anymore because they forced them to, to move and they expelled them from all over the place. But they want to concentrate them even more. And they demolished already many, many villages and they continue to do that and they those unrecognized villages don't have water system, don't have electricity, they don't have nothing, and they're under the threat of being demolished. What they want is basically to make those people move to the new cities, and those new cities are, are awful. So they use the tribal system that the Bedouin community is known as, and then they give like every tribe in neighborhood. Imagine like Bedouin people moving from living within the desert, working the land. Nomadic or Nomadic. Well, not very nomadic, but at least connected to nature. But then they mm-hmm. force them into like this small parcels where each family has one parcel. You'll see very high percentage of crime rates, poverty. Those places are awful. So no one wants also to move to those models, to those new s- cities. Even if they're good, people have the right not to move there. Because they have the right to live at their historic villages, this is their land. But even if, let's say, people want to give up on their land, the solutions are awful. People cannot live under those conditions. That
0: is Lama Shahade speaking with Miran Abulsi about Israel's settler colonial project and how it manifests itself in urban planning within the 1948 territories and how it impacted Palestinian citizens of Israel. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
1: clear that the approach, and you definitely alluded to that a lot, which is the approach that Israel has historically used is very similar to European colonialism when working with nature. So Mm -hmm. instead of nature being, you know, similar to how indigenous communities lived here and Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. parts of the world, much more in unity and in tandem with nature, uh, we're talking about an approach that is basically commodifying water and natural resources, and has a different idea of nature that is much Mm -hmm. more based off control and making money. And that speaks Mm -hmm. to so much of, I think, what you were saying. I want us to move to talk a little bit about basically the differences in urban planning between Jewish towns and Palestinian towns. And I'm thinking zoning, plans, maps, construction, and development. And how does it differ between Jewish-Israeli urban centers and Palestinian?
2: When we talk about Jewish urban planning, we're talking about planning from zero on empty lands. So it's very easy, very central, very Western. It's like you have uh, this engineer or urban planner that comes and draw the, the neighborhoods, decide what will be where, the streets network, whatever. And it's all public owned. So it's very easy later to control who live where and how to allocate all those resources within the cities. But then if we compare this to the planning system that works, the same planning system, by the way, it's the same law. We're still under the Israeli law, but then it's a law that came from above and was forced on us. It works differently then because we live on our private owned land which means like my family owns this one dunam of land. We have our house, our grandfather house, whatever, in one very particular square. And then for the Israelis, they know that, okay, if you want to build a house, you have to get a permit to build the house. And to get a permit to build a house, it means that there should be a master plan for that area. To have a master plan for that area means that someone has to come and draw the map and plan it, do like the zoning thing, where's the industrial zone, where's the, uh, where the residential zone, what's allowed here, there, where's the street, the network, etc. But they did not do that until after 2000, which means that we lived for decades in unplanned places, unplanned places means that it's okay to live in an unplanned place. I'm not saying that planning is is the best way, but if you live freely in that unplanned place, at at least you can have your own system or your own uh, whatever communal uh, system of allocating land, of real estate system, of a way to build houses, etc. But we lived in those closed borders where we cannot expand them. The only thing that we could do was to build our private houses on top of our parents' house or on our agricultural land that we don't need it anymore because it's not profit anymore. And we have to have a house, so that's a priority now. So people transferred those agricultural lands into houses, and the next generation built another layer of houses. So those areas became very dense. And now, if you come to those places and try to do the master plan, it's ridiculous because where you can have a street, where can you decide on an industrial zone? Like how can you do an industrial zone or plan a zone in a place that is all built already? And the facilities that are not residential are mixed within those residential areas. You'll see people's businesses under their houses, which is the only way for them to, to open the business. It has to be in their house. But then mixed-use planning is a good thing, but it's good when you have a good infrastructure for it, but not when it's in very narrow streets and those old cities, old villages where you can't even park your car. Add to this the amount of cars that now we need that made all this place very, very hard to live in. We don't have public transportation because the regulations for bus lines cannot work on those villages. You don't have enough space in the street. You can't build the station, the the bus stops, etc. Until very, very recently, 99% of the Palestinian villages did not have bus lines which means that you cannot even go to the to your work. So you have to have a car, which made many, many women unemployed. We have the highest percentage of unemployed women compared to all Palestinians living in Gaza or, or West Bank even. And high rate of poverty too, because... In those villages, when you don't expand the border, it's not because we want to live in undense places, but we want resources. When you expand borders and, you know, build industrial zones, build schools, all those facilities that you need, you also get profit from this. You have places to work, you have schools to go to, you have parks, you have sports facilities, etc. Our villages lack all those facilities. It became only residential villages with time, which means that the whole lifestyle is not traditional too, because we're in 2021, but it's not modern also. So if you want to go out with your friends, you don't have where to go. So you have to go to like someone's house or whatever. And imagine this with the traditional family conservative lifestyle you cannot leave that lifestyle you cannot change it or work towards a, a better community because you're stuck there the only way where to live is to live within your family household still or in the same unit or above your parents or whatever and uh, all family relatives live approximately around each others. so it enforced this lifestyle our other main problem that's other than the housing problem and the planning problem is the, the the crime rate, because Israel is not interested and they distribute guns. Uh, so whatever guns people can get, they're getting from police, from the from army. So yeah, we have criminal families, we have high crime rate, all within those very dense neighborhoods or cities. And you're uh, saying
1: the a lot of the guns that end up in the hands of Palestinian communities how does that work yeah. exactly how do they end up in people's hands
2: both from policemen and from army we don't have a, we don't control borders we don't have any way to get guns from anywhere and israel is not interested in enforcing any law that prevents people from having their guns so it, it's illegal it's illegal it's not like the us it is illegal but israel doesn't enforce the law for decades now and after decades of not enforcing such a, an important law, you know, people will just protect themselves because of the chaos that started happening. And yeah, it is from police and army and, uh, and it is known how, how it's transferred to us, how, how the policemen, you know, sell them. It's a black market of of guns, or, so that's the image kind of of how stuck those villages are in terms of planning and developing industrial areas, education facilities, public facilities, etc. But then, what is happening is that it's hard to live there, and when it's hard to live there, we're studying, we're we're seeing that oh, we can, we we should live in a better place, and we try to go to the cities, and the cities are kind of closed borders for us. Uh, the Jewish cities, they don't have space for us. Not schools, racism, etc. So it's very hard to live in those Jewish cities. Or committees that legally prevent us from buying houses. So we go to the historic villages like uh, Haifa or yafa or those areas where there were historic Palestinian um, community and uh, and today it's like mixed cities and we live there we live also in like those development towns too in the Mm -hmm. north or because it's cheaper sometimes to buy a house there it's a town it's not they don't have committees but still if you live there it's very hard to commute to your school to your kids uh, you know needs whatever but still there are no other options and those development towns they were built on our lands that was the goal so they're very close to us which worked. Now it's funny, like, yeah, they built it in order to make the Galilee Jewish, but then, oh, suddenly we have kind of towns near us where we can commute and live. Not everyone can do that, but some people can. Or we go to Haifa or those historic urban centers, and that's like the only way to live an urbanized life outside of those villages
1: so i wanted us to talk about the mixed cities first Mm -hmm. let's explain a little bit what mixed city means
2: well that's actually not a good term to use but that's how we call them usually Mm -hmm. mixed cities it's an occupied city that used to be a palestinian city but then because it's a city it was easier for jewish people during the british mandate to live there And later on in 1948, we were expelled. Some of their neighborhoods were demolished and it became uh, a Jewish-only city with a Palestinian neighborhood. So let's talk, for example, about Haifa and Yaffa, Akka. Those are the cities that I'm talking about. Um, So what happened, for example, in Haifa is that it used to be, it's a Palestinian city. It was built like 3,000 years ago. What happened during the British mandate is that it was a very important city because of the port, and so on. So it was a growing city and many Jewish people lived there. They were coming from Europe. It's a it's a good target where they can live and grow economically. They built new neighborhoods for Jewish people to move freely. And after that, in 1948, those cities were, you know, during the Nakba, the Palestinian neighborhoods were demolished. People were expelled. So Haifa, for example, I think from... 70,000 Palestinians that lived in Haifa, only 3,000 remained. And they were forced to move into one neighborhood that is Wadi Nisnaz. It Mm -hmm. became like a ghetto. So whoever remained in Haifa and was not expelled lived in one particular neighborhood. And people that were expelled from cities, because it was on the shoreline, like on the sea, so they were expelled by boats. They're not internally displaced. They didn't move to... Palestinian villages, they moved outside to Lebanon or other places. So we lost also the urban community. We lost those group of people and who remained were basically mostly people of the villages. That's another transformation of the Palestinian community. Coming back to those people, to the Palestinians who remained, they were forced into one neighborhood, Waden Isnaz, for example, in Haifa, Ajami, in Yafa, the historic Akka, like the historic city in Akka, the old city. Whoever remained there, they... And also, I talked about the property loads that transformed the, the ownership. So mm-hmm. all the, the houses that are empty now, they were transformed to state ownership, controlled by governmental companies, and people who were forced to move to Wadi Nisnaz, for example, they were forced to move not to their houses. They were forced to move to houses that is now owned by the government.
1: So they were uh, renters.
2: Yeah, so they became mm-hmm. renters. Those houses are for Palestinians, so everyone will know who's this house for. So it's also very hard to know that that people as um, The Palestinian living in Lebanon, you know that there is another Palestinian family, for example, living in your house or whatever. That became the the reality. Those ghetto neighborhoods became very poor until today. But then, because it's a city, it's urban life, and it was easier for Palestinians to move. And Haifa was in the north, for example, where most of the Palestinians, around 60% of Palestinians that remained in historic Palestine lived in the north. So we were able, mostly during nine, 1990s, to rent houses there, to start a new life in the city. So Haifa today, for example, is kind of the capital of Palestinians in Israel because of that situation. But then what is happening is that old neighborhoods, some of them were demolished, as I said. In Haifa, for example, so they just demolished the old city that Tahrir al-Omar built where people live they just demolished it and built new governmental offices and buildings. And You're talking
1: see- also about uh, historical sites like heritage sites mm-hmm. also were destroyed like the character of these cities that are thousands yeah. of years old was essentially altered very little is left of it.
2: Exactly it's- It was demolished, literally. You don't see it. And when you go to some of the neighborhoods that remained or survived, you'll see some houses and you can kind of imagine how Haifa was before. So, for example, in Haifa, Wadi Nisnas is one example because it wasn't demolished. Another example is Wadi Salib that was not demolished, as I said, because Mizrahi Jews lived there. So they moved to Adi Salib and then until the government expelled them again from those houses, it was then hard to demolish because it was later in 1950s where Israel is now a state and the war ended. So they don't demolish anymore in the same way that they demolished during the Nakba. Then during the Nakba, when they decided that they want to demolish the old city, the planner and I'm citing him now, he said that what he wanted is clearing the area for a new city was one way of replacing the hostile cityscape of the other, which means the Arab, with an appropriate environment for the new Jew. And this was Shaviv's planning a winning competition for the what is known now is, as the governmental offices in, in Haifa the high-scape buildings that is very close to Wadi Salib so you and now what is happening to those places that remain like Wadi Salib for example that is owned by the state because of the property thing the absentee's law mm-hmm. it's all by the state but they they're turning it into an uh, neighborhoods for artists and they're encouraging people to to rent like studios Art spaces there, and now they're starting another residential project there. So it will become like the old city of Yafa. If you go to Yafa, it's a very beautiful old city, and you will see it's empty. It's not the native people that living there. Who's living there are very rich Jewish, mostly artists. They build boutique hotels. It's like the image of gentrification that we know from all over the world, but the difference here is that it's very ethnic too.
1: Yeah, I definitely wanted us to unpack a little bit how a lot of the removal of Palestinians continues to this day in many of those historic cities, whether it's Akka, Acre, or Haifa. And definitely we see writings describing what's happening as gentrification, but perhaps that may neutralize a little bit the political and racial uh,
2: nature of what goes on. Gentrification is correct in terms of the, maybe the, the process, but it makes it like the whole international idea of gentrification that's happening everywhere. It's not the same because in those areas, in those old cities, people don't own their houses. Some of them do, but many of them don't own their houses because of, as I said, they live in, in the state-owned houses. And then what happens is that those companies will decide that, oh, we have an investor that want to buy those houses for a lot of money and they can sell it. And then what they say, okay, you as a renter, you can rent from them instead of renting from us as a state company. And then they, they will not become a protected renter anymore. Or other options too, is that because of those places becoming like a hotspot. And investors are coming from all over the world to buy those houses. They're ready to pay those people enough money to live. And when I say enough money, this money is not enough for them to buy another house in another place. It's a lot of money, but it's problematic too, because then the Palestinian environment that is known there will disappear. People cannot afford living in a place that is surrounded by boutique hotels. They cannot uh, anymore have their small shop there. So many of them leave. And don't forget, like we're talking about poverty neighborhoods, where many other social problems happening there, like crime, other things in the old city of Akka, they encourage people to leave. Also, for example, the Israelis are building a new Arab town. That's how they call it. It's called Tantura. That's the only place that was planned. It's not happening yet, but that was planned for Arabs since 1948. Nothing was built, uh, no expansion, no new cities, nothing, but but the concentration cities of Bedouin. That's not counted, but no new city was built for us. And now they're deciding, oh, we want to build a new Arab town in the Galilee area, very close to Akka. It's a very bad land it's a, it's a very dense, unfair, on the lands of Arab Palestinians living in the next village, but their lands were expropriated during the 1970s. But instead of giving them the land back, they're building a new city there. One of the goals of this city is basically to absorb people leaving Akka. We may see within, I don't know, a decade or so that people are actually uh, leaving Akka.
1: I wanted to understand if there's a role for settler organizations in these areas that get emptied of Palestinian population. Is there any similarity that can be drawn or comparison that we can see between how we see settlement expansion in the West Bank, for example, or forced evictions and home demolitions in Jerusalem and what happens inside communities of Palestinians inside Israel?
2: Yeah, there are a group of settlers, like those people who are working in Sheikh Jarrah, for example, bringing people to live between uh, Palestinians in their house. There are similar groups working in Lid. Uh, Ramli. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about what happened in Led for example, last month during the uprising, where those are settlers, basically. Just for
1: our uh, listeners that didn't America. follow, maybe just to explain a little bit, very briefly, what happened in Led
2: led is one of those historic Palestinian cities. It's, it's the same story, like Haifa, Akka, etc. The, the Palestinian community that remained there remained in a very particular area, and then the city became Jewish city, mostly Jewish, and And there are those groups and organizations that are encouraging settlers to come and buy houses and live in those neighborhoods. In Lid, during the uprising, one young man was killed by a settler there, and then Jewish settlers were coming from all over the place by buses to lead. They were beating people in the street, calling like death for Arabs, breaking into houses, and they were protected by the police. Even the police was helping them. They also controlled the big mosque. It's called the Big Mosque there, and they were throwing bombs into the mosque. Maybe here we can talk about also all those mixed that we call mixed cities, it's like occupied cities. In all those cities, clashes happened on a daily basis during May. Because in those places, Palestinians live in those ghettos, poor neighborhoods, and then settlers and Israelis live very next to them, very close to them. Palestinians are minority, so it's easier to attack them. It's easier than going into a Palestinian village in the Galilee or in the Naqab, in the desert, so they broke into houses, into neighborhoods. They organized buses in all those cities, in Haifa, in Yefa, in Akka. In Akka, the police just closed the, the old city and prevented the Palestinians from leaving the old city. And then left the Jewish settlers going by bus to another Arab neighborhood that's outside the old city. They broke into houses. They they were breaking cars, trying to fire houses. It was a big, big clash between police and those Zionist Jewish uh, settlers uh, and Palestinians living in those mixed cities. And that was the image in all those cities. So yeah, talking about groups or organization, yeah, they are very organized they organized themselves very well we saw them working like an army during during may and this is how they work when they sell houses when they when they see a neighborhood as a real estate opportunity and decide oh here we go we will buy those houses and then we will encourage people to rent them or whatever they work as an organization in many places
0: lama shahade is a palestinian architect and urban planner whose research focuses on the intersection of architecture and urban planning with spatial justice, environmental and political conflicts, and social formation. She's working on master plans for Palestinian towns and villages within 1948's borders. Please join us next week for the second part of this interview. She spoke with Mominoz Miranabolsi from Pacifica Radio this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa
3: wen badiki, ana nuskom baaref inn el beit qadeem hazini bas ana shou baghdar a'mel oddam el wahsh el azim am benhash batn el madina wen baddiki ana nuskom baaref inn el hazini bas ana shou baghdar a'mel oddam el عم بنهش بطن المدينة من قال إنه الشوارع رح تضل نفس الاشي من قال إنه المدينة بعدة بتنقطع ماشي من قال إنه الحارات بعد لعبتنا البريئه من سرق منا الطبيعة وقالنا حافظو على البيئة من حط السوق بمال من طلعنا من البيوت من قسمها ومن أجرنا استوديو أصغر من تابوت من أجمن دل أبيب أصدي من أجمن بولندا من عمر براج أزاز وإحنا هدلنا البراندا
2: that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at vomina_radio radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com.